Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably greater power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Bob. Good morning. We tend to see things from different perspectives. Have you noticed that over the last couple of years? A <laughs> uh, couple uh, tools to help us prove that out. Uh, let's look at this picture. Some of you may see an older woman. Some of you may see a younger woman. Do you see that? It's funny how our brains work, because you instantly go to the, a, a first one, and then you're like, oh, I see the other one. If you need help, come back to me later. Uh, second one here, some of us might see a couple standing at a lake. Some of us might see a baby sucking its thumb. See that? Whoa. All right. And then this one's from Harper's Weekly in, in 1892, the magazine. Some of you might see a duck. Some of you might see a rabbit. All right? Perspective is everything, especially when it comes to how we see ourselves, and that's what we're going to talk about today. We're in the last week of our series called Pray, and kind of, we've kind of had an agenda throughout this series. Uh, you may have noticed, you may have not noticed it. Uh, the agenda has been to move us as disciples of Jesus from our default way of praying, which we've been calling transactional prayer, asking God for stuff, and to move our prayer life towards what we're calling relational prayer, asking for more of God. Different, huge difference. Now, as we try to be faithful in saying there's nothing wrong with transactional prayer. It's biblical, if you have needs that come in your life, you should pray over them. There's tons of scriptures that prove that out. But here's my opinion, you can disagree with me. 
I think most of us, that's the majority of our prayer life. And I will argue that the majority of our prayer life should not be asking God for more stuff, but basking in God's presence and celebrating and contemplating all we have already been given. So we'll call on that relational prayer, or the ancient followers of Jesus would call that contemplative prayer. I want to do both. I want you to do both. My sense is most of us, the native prayer language is to come and have a transactional prayer. And we're trying to move you ever so subtly into this more mystical terrain of coming into God's presence and just being in God's presence and being loved. So this prayer today we're going to look at uh, will help us hopefully do that. Uh, If you have your Bibles, you can open them. If you have them on your phone, we'll be referencing a lot of different things. It'll be helpful. Uh, Bob read from Ephesians 1. I uh, struggle in my own prayer life. I don't always know what to pray. It's difficult. And I have gotten the advice, and I've passed it on to you on occasion, that if you're struggling, one of the good things you can do is pray the prayers from Scripture. They're in there. (laughs) I think they're rock-solid prayers. And so Denise walked us through several weeks ago Paul's second prayer in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 3. And we're going to end our series in his first prayer, which is the latter part of chapter 1. So I want you kind of, and hopefully you can go home this week as apprentices of Jesus and pray this prayer yourself for yourself and others. Paul begins the prayer by saying, for this reason, for this reason. So those words point us back to the first 14 verses, which are called the prologue. He's writing this church, to, uh, this, this letter to a group of followers of Jesus in the city of Ephesus. And that was the central church in Asia Minor. And they were meant to take that letter and then pass it on. It was a circular route to all the other churches in Asia Minor. It's a very, very important letter. And to Paul, from the get-go, Paul opens with this 14, in our our Bibles, their verses, although they weren't verses when Paul wrote them, 14-verse prologue. In the Greek language, it's one verse. It's one sentence. It just goes on and on and on. He's just like, boom, off he goes. And what he talks about and what he talks about throughout the letter, he uses this phrase, in Christ or through Christ. Just a little prepositional phrase that we could miss if we're just reading. But I will argue, I think it's one of the the most important phrases in all of scripture for followers of Jesus, especially if we want to see ourselves as God sees us. And I think that's one of the big motives of Paul's heart for these churches in Asia Minor. They weren't seeing themselves correctly. And Paul wanted to challenge them and pray over them that they would begin to see themselves as God sees them in Christ. So look, those first 14 verses, I won't read them, uh, but they're going to be up on the screen, and you can look down at them, or you can look up at the screen. I've given you a cheat sheet. I've bolded the instances in verses 1 through 14. Remember the the Bible study uh, idea that things that are repeated should be noticed, so the writers of Scripture, when they're repeating something, they're, they're like going, hey, check this out. You need to focus on this. So you can see here all the different times in the first 14 verses, one long run-on sentence that Paul starts this letter, that he uses that phrase, in Christ Jesus, or in him, or through Christ, or in the one he loves, or in him, or in Christ, on and on and on. You can count it if you want real quickly. I'll do the work for you. It's 11 times. 11 times. Boom, 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 boom. 
in the letter, the letter of the Ephesians, he uses that phrase 36 times. If you still don't believe me how important this is, in all of Paul's letters to all of the churches, he uses that phrase 164 times. That's how important it is. Because Paul knows, Paul's just like us, Paul's just like me, Paul's just like you. We have a tendency to not see ourselves correctly. I phrase this as identity. Like, I think that most of us have an identity crisis, including myself. And I define, sociologists can differ on their definitions of identity. I define identity as how we see ourselves. Ephesians, and specifically this prayer, is trying to shift our identity from how we naturally see ourselves, and this is Paul's phrase, in Adam, that's another little phrase he uses, to seeing ourselves in Christ. That's what the gospel does. That's what the work of Jesus on the cross does for those of us who sink our faith into Jesus. We get new identities. We're new creations. And Paul's like, you're still seeing yourself in Adam. You're still living your life as if you were in Adam. I want you to see yourself as God sees you, in Christ. That's why he hits it again and again and again and again. Here's a little chart I put together. This was helpful for me as I was sorting through it. Maybe it'll be helpful for you. I think these are the differences. Our identity in Adam, which is our natural default, it's the way most of the world around us works, Um, our identities are self-created. You hear that a lot. I'm gonna determine who I am. I tell you who I am. I create it. It's kind of ridiculous, to be honest. But our identity in Christ, God creates outside of ourselves. It's the difference between creating our identity internally and having the one who shaped us, who made us from the dust, who knit us together in the womb, tell us who we are. Identity in Adam is determined by appearance and performance. Uh, You could add uh, lots of other things to that. But it's totally dependent on things outside of ourselves. So it's fluid, and it's kind of like bondage. Our identity in Christ is determined by God's grace. It's a gift. It's a rock solid. It's not going to change. We can anchor down into it like a rock. Our identity in Adam has to be affirmed by others. See, this is the great fallacy of kind of the modern individualism we're all seeing, is when we determine who we are, we That's not enough. Sociologists say our identity has to be affirmed outside of ourselves. It just has to, or it's not real. So that's why you see this on social media all the time. That's why you gotta gotta agree with me that I've, and and this is who I am today, and this is who I am tomorrow, and you gotta agree. It's bondage. Our identity in Christ is affirmed by God. Our identity in Adam, I see this in myself. I see this in followers of Jesus everywhere in the American church, and it breaks my heart. There's this scarcity epidemic I don't have enough, I need more, and I need to hoard what I have, and oh, in Christ, there's abundance. Did you see that in the the prayer? We'll see it, we'll get into it. And then finally, identity in Adam, I also see this in myself, I see this in the American church, there's this fear, this fear-mongering. When did we get so scared? (laughs) We're just scared everywhere. But in Christ, our identity is rooted in love, which is the opposite of fear. As the scriptures say, there is no fear in love. Huge, huge difference. Game changer here. And that's why Paul emphasizes it again and again and again. And he uses his first prayer to pray it into the church. And he's trying to pray it in to us. All right, let's dig in. Another little way, a little, a little cute way, a little uh, kind of under the radar way. 
Paul affirms our new identity is he calls us saints. Like if you look at it, I'm not making this up. If you look at the first verse of Ephesians that says to the holy ones, that Greek word means set apart ones or saints in Ephesus. And then later, verse 15, for this reason, ever since I heard of your faith in Jesus and your love for all the saints. Saints is Paul's noun of choice for followers of Jesus. And it's not because they were great people. He lived with them for three years. And it's not because we're great people. See, we think of sainthood as men or women who just do everything right. They're perfect and they're righteous. That's how we use it. Paul's like, our sainthood is not determined by our performance, but by what God's done for us, what God has spoken over us. And so do you love that? From the very get-go, he lived with them for three years. He knew how broken they were. He knew how broken he was. He's like, to the saints in Ephesus. Wouldn't that be a game changer? We begin to call one another saints, <laughs> to turn our, our eyes from the brokenness that we see, from the other things that people say about us to a new way of seeing ourselves. Some scholars uh, argue that the letter to the Ephesians is apocalyptic literature. And that sounds like a weird, dirty Bible phrase. Apocalypse means revealing, it means eye-opening. Paul's trying to open their eyes. We, back in 2009, my wife and I went to see the first Avatar movie. I think the second one has come out recently, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. And we chose, we don't go to the theater too often, we chose to see the 3D version. So I don't know how many of the rest of you did that, but you put on the glasses and you're like, whoa! You know, there's like blue people floating at you and you know, you're, it's crazy. And this is what Paul hopes and prays will happen to us, kind of like by reading this letter. By praying this prayer, we put on these glasses and we're like, whoa, I didn't see that. Now I do. So let's get into the prayer. Uh, verses 15 through 19 is what I want to focus on. And Paul is not doing transactional prayer. Paul is doing this contemplative prayer. Paul's not asking God to give the Ephesian believers more stuff. He's tuning their hearts and opening their eyes to all they have already been given, reminding them of who they are in Christ. Look at it. Verse 17, Paul's asking the Father uh, that the God, the Spirit, would open their eyes. Verse 18, that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened. You could say this is an eye-opening prayer. And then he prays three specific things. You can do this too. It doesn't take a rocket scientist. You don't have to go to seminary to see this stuff. It's three simple things. He's asking God to open their eyes that they would see. Not get new stuff, but they would see they already possess. The first is that they have a hopeful calling. He's like, you're the church. You're the called out ones. That's what the name church means. I mean, sometimes we forget that. We're like, woe is me. The church is so broken. And it is. We struggle. We're in a tough season. But our call by God through the power of the Holy Spirit, is to usher in kingdom come to Portland as it is in heaven. If you look around and your heart is broken by what you see in your own life and in our city, we're not hopeless. We have an inherently hopeful calling as the people of God. So that's the first thing. He's like, God, let them see that. The same stuff's going on in Ephesus. It's going on here. Nothing new under the sun. He's like, let them be hopeful. Someone once uh, defined hope as faith living on its tiptoes. Love that. 
Where is that in the church? Let's awaken that again in the church. God's hopeful people. And then he prays, you can look down here, you can see it, that they would realize the vast riches they've been given. Look at some of the words. Paul tells us that we have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, that we've been adopted as God's children, and that we have been lavished with the riches of God's grace. And uh, Hetty Green is known as the world's greatest miser. Uh, Google it, her name will come up. 1916, she passed away and her wealth was 100 million. Somebody after the first service said they got distracted, they had to figure out what that was in modern wealth. It's like two point something billion. So pay attention to the sermon, you know, check Google later. Two point something billion dollars when she died, but she was notorious for her miserly behavior. She refused to heat up her oatmeal because of the cost of heating it up. Her son actually had his leg amputated, horrible story. He got injured, she took too long to try to find a free clinic, and his leg had to be amputated. Apparently she died arguing with someone and then she had a heart attack in the midst of it over the value of skim milk. (laughs) Here's this woman, you know, a billionaire living an impoverished life. And Paul's like, I see that going on in the church. What's up with this scarcity stuff? God has given you so much. What more do you need? Look at what God's given you. That's what he's praying into us. And then finally, he says, God, God, let them see the power at their disposal. He says, uh, we are powerful, not because of power in and out of ourselves, but because of God's, look at it, incomparably great power for those of us who believe. He goes on at the end, He says, this power is the same power that rose Jesus from the grave. The Greek word is dynamos, which we get our word dynamite from. And again, you look around, I look at my own life, and it's like, oh, woe is me. We got, Paul's like, God, open their eyes. Let them see. Give them hope. Let them see how much you've given them. Let them see the power at their disposal. We don't have to do it ourselves. God's given us the power. Let them see themselves from your perspective. There's this great story in 2 Kings 6. Check it out this week. And essentially, Elisha the prophet, he's in the city, and uh, and suddenly the city is surrounded by the enemy. They're being besieged, a mighty army. So his servant comes and shakes him awake, and you gotta come, it's horrible, you know, it's it's all gonna end. (laughs) Catastrophizing. And Elijah kind of, oh, you know, gets him out of bed and makes his way to the, the window. And, and, you know, he's drinking his coffee and he just doesn't look bothered at all. And the servant's like, what's your problem? Don't you see? We're about to you. And then he, here's the deal. He sees something his servant doesn't see. And he says, God, just for a second, give my servant the gift of seeing And the scriptures tell us the eyes of that servant was opened into the other realm and all around the hillside were God's angel armies. That's why Elisha was just like, yep, it's gonna be good. (laughs) (laughs) This is what's going on here. This is what Paul, he's leaning forward. He's like, I see it. I want you to see it. I want you to know who you are in Christ. I, uh, I had a a therapist in Madison for many years. I got a therapist here too. Uh, therapy's wonderful. And uh, my therapist there, her name was Sharon, and she became a good friend. And this was maybe 12 or 13 years ago. 
And I was in for my appointment, and, and I was working on a sermon. I can't actually remember what I was working on, but uh, I had some intriguing questions around therapy and, uh, you know, what, what causes people to come for therapy. I knew, I knew my own journey. but So I remember her back was turned to me. She was making copies as she was getting ready for our meeting. And, and I said, Sharon, can I ask you a question? And she said, sure. I said, I'm doing the sermon. So I wonder 20, 30 years of therapy you've done, thousands of people you've seen, I don't want to know any details you can't remember, but is there a thread that connects all the people? Is there kind of like a central issue that drives people like me to therapy? And she says, of course. And I'm like, what is it? <laughs> you know, I got out my notepad, I'm ready to write. And she says this, I'll never forget it. She says, not having enough. And I was like, not having enough what? And she says, just fill in the blank. I was like, oh, never forgotten that. That's at the heart of what's going on here. Paul's like, in Christ, in Jesus, followers of Jesus, you have enough. And more importantly, hear this, in Jesus, you are enough. You are enough. All right, as I write sermons, you guys know this, like, I, I'm like, so what? I, I do this for myself because I get all into the text and I like it and I get nerdy and I'm just like, you know, I try to think of somebody like Stephen. What's Stephen gonna like this? You know, he's he gonna fall asleep. You know, what's good? So what? So what? And so here's my so what. I don't know if this would be your so what, but this very simple idea that we need to see ourselves as God sees us. It's so important, so important. A couple more examples of how we see things from different perspectives, right? Is it a six or is it a nine, <laughs> right? <laughs> Perspective matters. Uh, I really like this one. Uh, one guy's like boat and another's like land. <laughs> it all depends on, right, your perspective. And this is probably my favorite one, uh, how birds see the world. So. <laughs> Perspective matters. Perspective matters, and Paul says, please, God, if I can pray one thing, help these followers of Jesus who are just like us to see themselves as you see them. That will be the game changer. One of my favorite children's books is called You Are Special by an author named Max Licato. Some of you may know Max uh, from his adult work, which I highly recommend. He's a wonderful writer, wonderful follower of Jesus. Um, you may have heard his name, you may not have, but he also writes a number of children's books. I think, um, I don't know that I've read everything that he's written, but I think this is the favorite, my, my favorite book that he's written. We used to read this over our girls, and you know, they would get tired of it or want to move on after time, but I found that I needed to read it to myself, <laughs> that I needed the lesson more than maybe they did. And so if you're a parent or you're a grandparent, this is a great gift uh, for Christmas, uh, but maybe buy a copy for yourself as well. <laughs> In the book, uh, it's, it's about a, a bunch of wooden people named Weemicks. And uh, these Weemicks, in their world, they give each other stars if they do good things, and they give each other dots if they do bad things. Good thing we don't live that way, right? <laughs> and uh, the main character of the story is a guy named Punchinello. So Punchinello is like, you know, he's the loser of the story. He's got so many dots falling off of him, he can't even keep track. He's just, he's just dropping dots everywhere. He gets, in what instance, there's a great line of the story. He's like, somebody gave him a dot because he had lots of dots. It's just like, jeez. <laughs> and then he sees uh, this little wee named Lucy. And, uh, and Lucy has no stars and no dots. 
he's like, huh, that's interesting. So he summons up the courage uh, to go up to Lucy and kind of said, what's, what's the deal? And she matter-of-factly says, oh, um, I spend regular time with Eli. He's the woodcarver that made all of us, and he resides at the top of the hill. Do you want to meet him? Which I was like, oh, my goodness, I don't know. <laughs> I guess. So they start to make their way up the hill, and this is, I'm reading right from the story now. Punchinello, the voice was deep and strong, and Punchinello stopped. Punchinello, how good to see you. Come and let me have a look at you. Punchinello turned slowly and looked at the large, bearded craftsman. You know my name? The little Weemick asked. Of course I do. I made you. Eli stooped down and picked him up and set him on the bench. Hmm, the maker thought, spoke thoughtfully as he inspected the gray circles. Looks like you've been given some bad marks. I didn't mean to, Eli. I, I really tried hard. Oh, you don't have to defend yourself to me, child. I don't care what the other Weemicks think. You don't? Oh, and you shouldn't either. Who are they to give you stars or dots? They're Weemicks just like you. What they think doesn't matter, Punchinello. All that matters is what I think. And I think you're pretty special. Punchinello laughed, me special? I can't walk fast, I can't jump, my paint's peeling. Why do I matter to you? Eli looked at Punchinello, put his hands on those small wooden shoulders and spoke very slowly. Because you're mine. That's why you matter to me. Punchinello had never had anyone look at him like this, much less his maker. He didn't know what to say. Every day I've been hoping you'd come, Eli explained. I came because I met someone who had no marks. I know. She told me about you. But why don't the stickers stay on her? Because she has decided that what I think is more important than what they think. The stickers only stick if you let them. What? The stickers only stick if they matter to you. The more you trust my love, the less you care about the stickers. I'm not sure I understand. You will, but it'll take time. You got a lot of marks. For now, just come to see me every day and let me remind you how much I love you. Eli lifted Punchinello off the bench and set him on the ground. Remember, Eli said, as the Weemick walked out the door, you are special because I made you, and I don't make mistakes. Punchinello didn't stop, but in his heart, he thought, I think he really means it. And when he did, a dot fell to the ground. Our family went to see uh, Barbie last week, so I don't know how many, how many of you want to raise your hand. I went with uh, my girls and my wife. It was wonderful. Um, I know there's a lot of political, so just ignore all that stuff. So, uh, Greta Gerwig, who was kind of the creator of the movie, she is a, a, a deep heritage of faith. She said that she wrote a lot of the movie around a biblical worldview and mindset, and you see that if you have eyes to see it when you go. Uh, one thing really struck me as I was pondering the movie later. I won't give it away, uh, this, does, this doesn't give the plot away, but Barbie, she's going back and forth in Barbie land to the real world, you'll understand if you see it. But both, near the end, both Barbie and Ken are having identity crisis. They're trying to figure out who they are. And twice, Greta places Barbie in scenes with her creator, the person who made the Barbie doll, played by Rhea Perlman from Cheers fame. And the last scene definitely got me because it's like from a distance and she's at the apex of trying to figure out who she is and you don't even necessarily hear what they're saying, but they're standing and you can just feel the love and the tenderness. And at one point, Rhea tells Barbie, I made you after my own daughter. 
And that gave her the courage she heard from her creator to remember who she was. So we need to see ourselves, not how others see us, not how we see ourselves, but how God sees us. Secondly, we need to remind others who are in Christ who they are. This is one of the great beauties of what we're doing right here. The great beauty is not you sitting in rows staring at me, maybe occasionally laughing at a joke. You should laugh more, but occasionally laughing. The beauty is when we are the body of Christ together. And one of the gifts we can give one another, and this is what the writers of Scripture say, we need to continually encourage one another, here it is, in the Lord. It's that phrase. We need to be the mouthpiece for others when they've forgotten who they are, reminding them who they are. There's a, a movie many years ago that's one of my favorite romantic comedies called 50 First Dates with Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore. You remember? Someone uh, caught me after that. I think it's based on a true story. But essentially, uh, Drew Barrymore, she forgets who she is every night. She's got this brain thing. So Adam Sandler's falling in love with her. They're having all these incredible dates that go far in the night. But as soon as she's asleep, she wakes up and she doesn't know who he is. Can you imagine? But he's falling in love with her. And really, the beauty of the story is he realizes he accepts that, and every day, he sees it as his job to show up at the place she, she's at in the morning in the diner and spend the entire day reminding her who she is. And that's what we need to do for one another. It's so, so easy to get caught up in all the negativity of what people say about us, the things our own broken hearts are telling us about ourselves. As the body of Christ and the people of God, we need to encourage one another in the Lord. You're, we've got hope. You've got vast riches. You've got incredible power. God's with you. God loves you. That's so life-giving for me when I get those texts from friends and those calls and those emails or one of you pulls me and grabs me and reminds me who I am. That's the gift we can give. I worked for many years um, under a pastor who was married to a woman, and uh, she had a, a tough upbringing, a kind of an abusive family situation, just bad things had been said to her by the people who shouldn't say bad things to her. And my friend, as, as, as her husband that loved her, um, knew that that was a huge part of her journey and a huge part of her healing. So to this day, and from the very beginning, and to this day he still does it, he doesn't call her by her given name, he calls her sunshine. Isn't that incredible? Just that shift, that shift of reminding us who we are in Christ. Um, I want to give you an opportunity. You know that I like to involve you in the service. Um, I want to give you an opportunity to just pray this little prayer over someone. And it'll just be a little, little one or two minutes here. It's a way for you to participate. Now, it could be the person right beside you that you're thinking, like, they really need to remember who they are. Uh, it could be somebody that's not here, maybe as I've been talking about this, someone's name, the Holy Spirit has brought someone's name to your mind and heart. This is a gift you can give them right now, and so this prayer will come up, and I, I encourage you to continue this practice, not only praying this over yourself, but the people that you love, parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, friends, what a gift. And so I'm just going to give you a minute, the, the prayer will come up on the screen, and it's got a little blank there for you to fill in the name of someone. So just, let's just pray this prayer. Who needs to be reminded who they are today? Let's pray, and I'll bring us back together in a second.
Amen. Uh, finally, and as we kind of get ready for the communion table here, I guess I'll leave you with this uh, from this series, trying to move us from transactional prayer to relational prayer. Prayer is an opportunity daily, as much as you want, uh, to remember who you are, just to spend time with the Creator, just to remember who you are. There's a, sociologists have this theory called the looking glass self. And the theory is uh, when we look in the mirror and ask, who am I? We invariably answer that based on what we think other people would say about us, particularly the most important people in our life. And maybe you're surrounded by incredible loving people that that's still an insufficient way forward. We need to begin to answer that question, who am I? by seeing ourselves as God sees us in Christ. I've had people through the years say, well, that's, man, there's a lot there, and there's a lot of in Christ, and this and this, like, simplify it for me. <laughs> How would you define what it means to be in Christ? I think I, I can, humbly. I think I, I, think I can simplify. Uh, being in Christ and seeing ourselves in Christ means that God feels the same way about you that he feels about Jesus. How about that? And what did God say? You may remember this, these stories, you may not, that's okay. But at Jesus' baptism and at Jesus' transfiguration, that weird scene with the tents and Moses and the disciples, God speaks audibly from the heavens and says, what about his son? He says, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's you. No, don't look away. Some of you are looking away. You don't believe me. You need to hear that. It's true. You're not your past. You're not what happened in your family. You're not the failures that have been attached to you, whether they're true or not. You're not how you look or how you perform, any of that foolishness. You are God's beloved child in whom he is well pleased. You not collectively, individually, uniquely, you are God's beloved child in whom he is well pleased. And we need to take more time to just enter into God's presence and hear that and let it form us as God's people. Amen? So I want to I do that as we conclude this, this series. You may have hated this part of the series. I don't know. <laughs> but I've tried to, I, I, we'll try to teach you tools. And, uh, it's called centering prayer. And this is something I've done the last couple of years. I don't do it well. It's not about doing it well. But it's been transformative for my prayer life. And it really, I'm a type A person that wants to go right to transactional prayer. And it, it stops me in my tracks. And all centering prayer is, and followers of Jesus have been doing this for 1,500 years is you just come up with a prayer, a line that's true, and you say one phrase you breathe in, and the other phrase you breathe out. And you just get in that cadence. Doesn't matter if your mind wanders, you just keep with that cadence. And you enter a space of holiness. Nothing, nothing crazy about it, nothing weird. It's just a simple way to enter your mind and your heart into the truth of God's presence and what God says about you. So I wanna do this right now. Take this prayer with you, if you will, I kind of formed this prayer for myself out of this sermon, and it's been impactful for my own journey as I prayed over myself and my family days. So let's, as we've done, just one to two minutes here. If you don't want to do it, totally cool. <laughs> you don't have to do it. But if you're willing to do it, like breathe in, 
And then breathe out. Remember, it doesn't matter what other people think. <laughs> breathe in, all right? I am your beloved child. Breathe out in whom you are well pleased. Breathe in. I am your beloved child. Breathe out in whom you are well pleased. What a truth. Breathe in. I am your beloved child. Breathe out in whom you are well pleased. One more time, and then I'll let you take over. I am your beloved child. 